of David a mascal. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through the groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. So I looked that up as well uh, because being an Afrikaans speaker, I don't know all these fancy English words. So it means immoral or grossly unfair behavior. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my son, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule. We have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, uh, Johan. I would be happy to elaborate on sila and the meaning and the uh, importance of the word, but uh, I just don't have time, so I can't this morning. Uh, rest, peace, sila. Um, we are in a, a, a series right now, uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, we're in a series right now called what we're calling Gospel-Centered Living. Uh, and what we're trying to understand is, is how this very profound event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is the gospel, Jesus lived the life we should have lived, He died the death we should have died. How does that event, how does that message, once it sinks into your heart, once you accept that into your heart, how does it have an effect on your actual day-to-day living, uh, because there's a sense, it seems, where uh, we think that, that believing the gospel is something that, uh, that sort of has a future uh, payoff to it. When someone believes in Jesus, that means that their sins are forgiven, and that means that uh, at the end of their lives, when they die, uh, they will escape God's judgment, and they will not end up being condemned for those sins. And while that is true, uh, it is not everything. See, the gospel is meant to have an effect on our lives in the here and now as well. Once you become a believer, it's supposed to do something in you. And the thing that it's supposed to do, according to the Bible, is is it's supposed to bear fruit. So Colossians 1 verse 6 says this. It says, uh, all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and going. (laughs) And going, no. 
It is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. So the, so the gospel is supposed to bear fruit in us. It's supposed to grow in us. It's supposed to make changes in us. It's supposed to, to do stuff to you so that if you are a Christian, you're not the same person entirely this year that you were last year. And we're trying to figure that out. Like, how does it do that? In what ways does it do that? And, and how can we measure that? I mean, you should be able to measure it. After all, uh, bearing fruit means uh, that something is growing and you should be able to measure the growth in something, right? So we've been kind of looking at different aspects of that over the last number of weeks. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the extremely critical, crucial, important, necessary role of something called repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a word that describes the process of recognizing that you are a sinner deserving of God's judgment. You turn away from that sin and that rebellion against God, that, that living your own way by your own rules. You know what's right and you're going you're gonna to go do it come hell or high water. You turn away from that and you embrace Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, as the one who paid for your sins and as the one who now, because He paid for your sins, who's now Lord of your life and directs your life and leads you in your day-to-day living. That's, that's repentance. Now, here's the thing. People often think that repentance is kind of this one-time thing. You know, uh, in 1998, on September 4th, I repented and I became a Christian. But Scripture says that repentance is supposed to be an ongoing thing in the life of a Christian. Christians should be characterized by repentance. Martin Luther says something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something to the effect that when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he meant that All of a Christian's life ought to be characterized by this act of repentance, okay? It's something that Christians ought to be doing all the time. Christians ought to be very quick to say sorry to God and to others, and they ought to be quick to forgive others the offenses that have been conducted against them. Now, if you look in in your bulletin, you'll see this chart, okay? And in this chart, notice how this chart, it says here's, there's time, right? And then and there's this moment in time called conversion. And that's the moment where a person says, okay, I, I believe in my heart that Jesus is the Son of God who lived and died for me. Okay, that's your moment of conversion, right? But, he said, but what happens at that moment of conversion, what's supposed to happen in a Christian's life, from that time on, two things are supposed to happen. You're supposed to grow in your understanding of God's holiness and His majesty and His glory and His transcendence, His, I don't know, His awesomeness. And I mean that in like the real sense of the term awesome, not in our like awesome, but like His awesomeness, His bigness, His his amazingness, okay? You grow in your understanding of that. And at the same time, in your growing of your understanding of that, you also grow in your understanding that you are a sinner and of your own sin. Now, people don't like this, okay? People... People do not like this. People don't like being told that the life of being a Christian is figuring out more and more just how bad you are. Like, what a drag, man. Ah, but here's the thing. Look at the chart. 
See that cross getting bigger? As you grow in your understanding of God's holiness, as you grow in your understanding of your sinfulness, at the same time, what happens then is, is the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger in your life. You start to be more overwhelmed by the incredible message that Jesus willingly died for you, you sorry sinner. And his blood is sufficient, it is enough to cover every single one of your sins, no matter how big it is. And listen, that means everything. Why does that mean everything? Because I can tell you right now, one of the biggest problems in the world is the problem of guilt. And this isn't just a Christian problem, okay? I get to talk to lots of non-Christians, and I can tell you, there are non-Christians who are being crushed, crushed by guilt. The problem is... They don't have a clue how to deal with it. And here's the key. Here's the answer. Repentance. Problem is, people don't know how to do it. And I, you know, I got to admit, this is one of the things when I first became a pastor, it baffled me to discover that it's not just non-religious people who don't understand repentance. Christians don't understand repentance. Christians suck at it. And it baffles me because the whole point of the Christian faith is, is this repentance thing that Martin Luther said is, you know, repent and believe. Like, you'd think that that was something we understand. But you know what? Lots of Christians, they don't repent. And when they do, they're pretty half-hearted about it. And it's a pretty half-baked repentance. But it's critical. It's crucial. If you want the gospel to have a real effect on your life, you have got to grasp what repentance is and how it works. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning from this incredibly deep and profound psalm, Psalm 32. Now, uh, we are just doing a flyover. It's killing me, I'll be honest, to do this flyover. Uh, maybe I'm going to, maybe I, I, di- I want, years ago I preached a series on repentance. I preached, I don't know, like eight sermons on this one concept. I might do it again. I probably will. I guarantee you I will do it again. <laughs> because this is so critical and so crucial. And it's so convicting in my own heart and mind and life. Like it, I could almost cry. Um, but this morning, it were just, I'm broad strokes, major self-control on my part. Here we go. We're going to look at repentance in relationship with God, but the principles are applicable to your relationship with everybody else in your life as well. We're going to look at the necessity of repentance, the process of repentance, the power of repentance. We're scratching the surface. There's an outline in the back of your hymnal, or hymnal, (laughs) the back of your, uh, or is there not? Maybe there isn't. Maybe there wasn't room. Oh, no, there is. Yeah, there's an outline in the back of your bulletin to help kind of orient you as we go through this. Here we go. Let's think about repentance. First of all, the necessity of repentance. Understand something. There's two psalms in the Psalter, two psalms that are uh, David's reflection on his own sinfulness. And let me just say, if you think you are the biggest, baddest sinner out there, you got some competition in the Bible. David's one of the big contenders up against you because in Psalm 51 and in Psalm 32, David reflects on sins that he committed and they're big, they're huge. Here's what he did very quickly. He saw 
a woman that was drop-dead gorgeous, and he wanted her. He wanted her sexually, and he wanted to make her his wife. And because he's the king, the king can kind of do whatever he wants. So he commits adultery with her. But, but you got to understand, he doesn't just commit adultery with this woman. He commits adultery with the wife of one of his best friends, and that's a bad thing. So in the end, he has to have his, one of his best friends killed because he tries to cover up this adultery. So if you have committed murder and you have committed adultery, you are in good company with King David. Now, Psalm 51 is his, it, his reaction to being convicted of his sin. It's sort of the, the in the moment, Nathan comes to him, tells him what he's done, the scales come off his eyes, he goes, he's horrified by himself, and he writes Psalm 51 as a psalm of confession. Psalm 32, scholars believe, is David's reflection on all of that from distance. So he's been through it all. He's, you know, maybe back in his right mind or whatever, and he looks back on that whole affair, that whole experience, and he reflects, and he thinks about what he did, and he thinks through the consequences of what he did. And notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And basically what he's saying is, I, I was so overwhelmed with guilt that I suffered physical symptoms. I got sick because of what I did and because of the guilt, guilt I felt over what I did. And, and here's the lesson, friends. Guilt is inescapable. It is inescapable. He says, I felt my groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me day and night. I couldn't get away from it. And, and I'm sure you know a little bit what this is like, right? Like when you do something really bad, you, it, it's almost like you obsess over it for a while. You can't turn it off in your head. You can't get rid of it. It's just, it's just whirring around there. And, and you may suppress it for a while, but then all of a sudden something happens and it reminds you of what you did. Maybe you are walking down the street and you see something and it reminds you of what you did. And, and all of a sudden the tape starts playing in your head again and your chest starts to tighten and you get a knot in your stomach and you, you feel nauseous and you feel sick. Am I the only one who's ever had this? What's going on? Now you say, well, it's psychosomatic, right? What is psychosomatic? It's your, it's your brain making stuff happen to your body. Well, sure. But the pain still, still hurts, right? You still feel the weight of it. You still feel the constriction of it, the pressing down on you. Now, one, this is one of the things, I mean, I could spend the next half hour just quoting one great piece of literature after another because all the great artists, literary geniuses in history have dealt with this theme. But we, of course, can't do that. So I will just hit you with one of the best, okay? Shakespeare, Macbeth. You ever read Macbeth or seen Macbeth? What's the story of Macbeth, right? Macbeth is told by these three witches that uh, they have prophesied that he will become king of Scotland. So what does he do? He says, well, let's make it happen. 
And so he conspires to kill King Duncan with the help of his wife and others, and they have him murdered. But the guilt of that murder starts to weigh down on him, and it starts to weigh down on his wife. And there's this scene, you know, where his wife is constantly washing her hands, right? Because she's got this stain of blood on her hands, and she's rubbing her hands. She's always saying, out, out, damn spot. And she can't get away from it. It's inescapable. And listen to what Macbeth does. He calls in a doctor... And he says to the doctor, and now this is, you know, fancy-schmancy English, but it's, it's pretty awesome, fancy. I love fancy-schmancy English, so let me quote it to you that way. Can't, he says this to the doctor, Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Raise out the written troubles of the brain. And with some sweet, oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. Can't you get rid of it, Doc? Nope. His response is no. You know what she needs? She needs a priest, not a doctor. Here's the point. Guilt is real. It is debilitating. Carl Menninger, some of you may have heard that name before. He's a famous psychologist, uh, American psychologist. And you know, he, at one point he said that I could empty 70% of psychiatric, uh, psychiatric patients out of psych hospitals if I could convince them of one thing, your sins are forgiven. And it will do you no good to just say, oh, don't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel guilty. We shouldn't feel guilty. Are you kidding me? Psychopaths don't feel guilty. It's part of the definition of being a psychopath. Who in their right mind wants to become a psychopath? Okay? You've got to deal with your guilt. And so we do. That's what we do. We try to deal with our guilt. But listen, I'm going to give you very quickly eight ways that we try to deal with our guilt that don't work. And I'll just say this. I don't always tell you to write stuff down. You might want to write these things down and then test them against your own life and, and ask yourself, is this how I deal with my guilt? First of all, we'll blame shift. That's the first one. We blame shift. We say, you know, it's not really my fault. It's someone else's fault. That's, right, that's Adam. We've been doing that for a long time. Adam, why'd you eat the tree? It's that woman you gave me. It's her fault. That's why I ate the fruit of the tree. So that's the first one. Second one is, is we define it away. We define it away. We say, it's not really wrong. If you think about it, like, it's okay because the way I did it or the circumstances under which it happened, that makes it okay for me. So we define it away or, or we deaden it. This is a pretty popular one these days. We deaden it, right? We medicate ourselves so that we don't have to think about it. With substances, we drink, we shop, we eat, we try to push it below the surface, right? Or maybe what we do is we run other people down. Here's another one. We run other people down to make ourselves feel good. Well, at least I'm not like Bob, right? Everybody knows. There's nobody named Bob here, right? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there is. Bob is real bad. I'm not like Bob. Or what we do is we, we bury ourselves in achievement. 
right? So I work really hard, and then we look at our achievement. We say, look at all the good I'm doing. My goods outweigh my bads, right? Okay, I did that something thing that was really wrong, but look at here. I'm, I've been working hard and volunteering, and I cut checks, and I'm generous. Oh, here's another one, generosity. You become very, very generous, and you're like, what? How, how does generosity deal with guilt? Well, here's a rich CEO. He's had three wives. His kids hate him because they don't ever, he never talks to them and never was around to raise them because he was always at work and he's made lots of money. And now what does he do? He tries to give a, bunch of, a whole bunch of money away so that he can get his name on the wing of a hospital. You're trying to compensate for your guilt. Or you justify, right? I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. I was, I was locked into, uh, you know, maybe I had a bad upbringing, and so these things, they're, they're just really the result of, of, uh, of circumstances beyond my control. And then, of course, the last one is, is we blame share. We blame share. We say, well, everybody does this. That bad, right? Like, I tell you, cheat on your taxes. Pay cash for lots of services and products and stuff. I'm like, ah, you know, everybody does it. And it's the government, stupid government. They don't know how to use my tax money anyway. And so we're trying to deal with our guilt. But the problem is, is we deal oh so poorly with it. And so where are we left with? We're left with the need for repentance. Repentance is necessary. It's the only way. It's the only way we can deal with this guilt. So what's the process of repentance? You know, there's a place in, in 2 Corinthians 7, and uh, I'll preach on that when we do our whole series on confession. Uh, in verse 10... The Apostle Paul says something very interesting. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow leads to repentance that brings salvation and, leads no, and leaves no regret. But then he also goes on to say this, but worldly sorrow brings death. And you see, there's a way of repenting that is actually self-destructive. And there's a way of repentance that leads to salvation and no regret. Well, doesn't everybody want that? The problem is most of us don't understand that process. We only understand the worldly process. We kind of know intuitively that it leads to death. And so what do we do? We say, I ain't doing that. I ain't repenting. Because you know deep down it leads to death. The problem is, is you don't know the process that leads to life. And David shows us that process here this morning. So let's have a look at it. Um, the process. Where are we here? Okay. The, fir the first thing you got to do in this process is you've got to admit what you've done. And I know that sounds like pretty self-explanatory, a duh. Look at verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. You've got to admit. You've got to, you've got to admit what you've done. You, and, and you say, well, yeah, I get that. But here's the problem. We're not good at this at all. Do you notice... It says, I didn't cover up my sin. That's what we do. I just gave you kind of ways that we do that, a bunch of ways that we cover up. But, but really what it all boils down to is, is we try to ignore it. It's like, you know, in your basement, you've got that, that clutter section, right? Everybody's got it. It's got that, that, for some of us, it's a room. It's like it's so big. It's a whole room. And what do you do? You just, like you walk by and the doors open, you just go, oh, clunk, and you shut the door and you keep walking. 
because you don't want to deal with it. Some of us, we live in smaller spaces, so we just have a, a little area, so we throw a blanket over it or something, right? Especially when people come over. <laughs> we ignore it. We don't want to face it. When you uncover it, when you open the door, when you pull the blanket off, what are you doing? You expose it, right? You let it out. And that's what it means to admit. It means, essentially, to let it out and take full responsibility for it, full ownership of it. Don't try to skirt the responsibility in any small way. For example, when a person blows up and they lose their temper, what do you hear them say all the time? Well, so-and-so pushed my buttons. That's excusing it. That's not taking full ownership. You are responsible for your actions. And the reason is, is because this is something, my dad's here this morning, so shout out to my dad. My dad taught me something when I was young that has been extremely helpful. You can only get out of a person what's in a person. Now, that is obvious, but if you allow it to percolate in your brain a little bit, it will help you a lot in your relationships. You can only get out of a person what's in a person. You can't get blood from a stone, right? You've heard that, story, that, that saying before. Uh, the example I always use, and I never have the bottle, so just keep listening. Um, I'll use a cup instead, a cup of water. If I take this cup of water and I shake it, water comes out of it, right? Why did water come out of this cup of water? And you say, well, because you shook it. Ah, but listen carefully to the question. Why did water come out of this cup? Because water's in the cup, right? I mean, this isn't rocket science, but it's stuff we don't think about and don't realize. Only what's in something can come out of something. So when someone pushes your buttons and you explode with a bad temper, the reason you explode with a bad temper isn't because of the button pushing, it's because you got anger issues, man. That's what's in you. Someone else, their buttons get pushed and for some reason they're all laid back. They're like, hey, take it easy, man, come on. You don't have to get all worked up. Why? Because they don't have the same problems as you. You've got to admit What's in there? And you might say, well, it's not that simple because, you know, sometimes I'm only 40% wrong and that person is 60% wrong. Or it's never that way with God, first of all. But second of all, own your 40%. Shut up about their 60%. That's their problem. Taking full... I know, I shouldn't... You know, you want some little kids here. Kids, don't say shut up, okay? Don't... Don't you got to admit it. you got to admit what you've done. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, it's not enough just to admit what you've done. You have got to recognize the damage you've caused. Recognize the damage you've caused. Now, we're, we're, we are, we're wandering a little bit out of our text, but I, it, it's relevant. So you notice that it says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. What does it mean to confess something? Is it just to say, yeah, I did it? No, it's so much more than that. This word confess, when you go to the New Testament, in the New Testament, whenever it uses the word confess, it's this particular Greek word called homologain. And what this word means basically is to say the same thing. You have to learn to say the same thing. What does that mean? It means, essentially, 
It, it, it means you do the emotional work of seeing your sin from the perspective of the person you sinned against. Seeing your wrongdoing from their perspective, the person that you offended, so that you can agree with their experience and their assessment of it. See, what I mean is you do something really bad, and this happened to me recently. I was talking to people, and, and uh, uh, the one had, had, had done something against the other, and it was pretty serious and pretty significant, and they were just trying to hide and downplay it, and they said, yeah, I know, I was a bad boy. And I just looked at him and I said, you do not know beans all if you think that the way to address this is to say, I was a bad boy. You didn't steal a cookie, man. Homologain means that you, you, you see it from the perspective of the other person. Like if you say, and look, this is what you've done. I know you've done this. Everybody, I did, I've done this. I mean, why do you think I know this? Because I've done this. When you say, if I offended you, or if you say, if I hurt you, I'm sorry, or if you say, if I disappointed you, I'm sorry, you're just showing that you do not want to do the emotional work of understanding what you've done to that person. Or if you say, I'm sorry you're upset. Have you ever done that? Come on, husbands, wives, aren't we having a lot of fun right now seeing ourselves in all of this? I'm sorry, I'm sorry you're mad at me. You're not owning up. You gotta do the true work of confessing, especially with God, especially with God. I, here's an attempt, here's an attempt. You don't know how long it took me to write this. It is very hard to do homologain, to see things from the perspective of other people because we are fundamentally self-centered people. We are looking at ourselves all the time and you gotta get out of yourself. So this is my attempt at confessing to God this way, if I can put it. Father, I can hardly imagine what it must be like to be you. You created me out of love. You blessed me with life. You saved me from my sin through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. You've given me more good things than I could ever deserve. You are constantly moving toward me in love, and yet I go through so much of my life with barely an interest in you. Barely a thought of your goodness, your grace, your beauty. I can't understand what it must be like to treat someone so graciously, so lovingly, so consistently, and then be so mistreated by them. Have promises made that are broken time and time and time again. I am trying to understand. Please forgive me. Now, that is hard. That is hard to do. But you see, if you don't do that, this is what your confessions will look like. Listen to verse 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. That's what your confession will look like. You have no understanding. You see, all you get are consequences. That's all that matters to you is dealing with these consequences. See, you know, I've, I've seen this happen. Um, a wife says to a husband, look, 
we got problems. There's issues in our relationship. We got to deal with them. And the husband says, yeah, 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 I know. And, but he never actually deals with them. She says, these behaviors got to stop. And, and he says, nah, I, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But he doesn't ever stop the behaviors. He's not listening to her. And so finally she drops the hammer and she says, I'm leaving. And that's when my phone rings. Pastor, we got a problem. She's leaving. We need you to come and talk to us. So you go over there and you sit down with them and you talk to them and you say, what's the problem? And she says, this is the problem. And he says, yeah, yeah, I, I'm listening now. I'm going to change. I'm totally committed to it. And you say, okay, we're going to do this. And we sign up to go see a counselor and we check in regularly and all that kind of stuff. And things look okay for a few weeks, maybe even a couple of months, but eventually he realizes, you know, she's not going anywhere. She's staying. And he sinks back into the same old behavior. Why? Because he wasn't really sorry for his sin. He was sorry for the consequences of his sin. He didn't want to lose out on her. He's like the, he's like the donkey that's just getting, or the mule that's just getting pulled. It hurts to go off the path, so I better stay on the path, you see? I, I have a friend, and I'm allowed to do this, okay? Um, uh, he, he has encouraged me to do this. I have a very good friend of mine who was addicted to pornography for uh, nearly 15 years, and he was in the grip of it terribly, and his wife caught him, and his, their world fell apart. But this guy, I tell you, he did everything that was asked of him, everything. They met with me. I said, you got to do this, this, this. He said, fine, whatever. you got to go to this counselor. When do we go? How often do, I, do we go? Get rid of your television. You're not allowed to watch TV for six months. Fine. <laughs> Throws it out the window. He did everything he was told, and he was utterly committed because he was doing homolo gain. He saw, he saw the destruction that he had caused in the hurt that he had caused in his wife, and it ruined him. And now, 10 years later, like they walk around with t-shirts, I love my wife and I love my husband, like it's gross, they're so in love, right? Um, but it's an amazing story, it's an amazing story. You've got to, friends, you've got to recognize the damage you caused. Okay, we could go on and on, we're going to move to the third point. The power of true repentance. We don't do this, right? We don't do this. We don't do this enough. And the reason we don't do this enough is because we don't see the, the restorative power of repentance. We don't believe what it can do. But look at verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Blessed, blessed, blessed. It keeps saying blessed. What's this all about? What does it mean to be blessed according to the Bible? Does it mean you're, you know, you're happy? Uh, well, yeah, but that is such a weak description of what it means to be blessed. To be blessed according to Scripture means to have complete wellness of being. It's to have profound fulfillment. How in the world does repentance provide that? Well, it says over and over there, it says these three things, right? It says his sins are covered. 
His sins are forgiven. They're not counted against him. There are, these are very rich concepts. We can't go through all the concepts, but this is at the heart of it. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. Your guilt is removed. Somehow, it's taken away. It's covered. It's not counted against you. It's forgiven. It's, 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 it's removed and taken away from you. How, what is that all about? Well, imagine, okay, you go to a restaurant with a bunch of friends, and you go out to eat, and you're having a good time. This sometimes happens, right? You get caught up in it. Like, this is a great time. I'm having a great time. So you buy another drink, and you buy another appetizer, and you buy another, you buy the, the best entree on the menu. And at the end of the night, you start going, oh, man, I just blew my budget. Oy, oy, oy. I can't afford this. And you're with all these people, and you're like, when the card comes, and I'm about to get, like, rejected, I'm going to look like an idiot. And you feel shame and embarrassment and guilt. And then all of a sudden, one of the people at the table stands up and pulls out a card and says, don't worry, everybody, I got this. It's covered, right? They've covered the bill. And how do you respond to that? You respond with, like, relief, <laughs> right? You respond with joy. You respond with incredible thanksgiving, because what? The burden has been lifted, right? The debt, it's gone. It's taken away. And you got to understand, it's, it's objectively taken away, meaning it's taken away in reality, but it can also, because of that, it is, it is subjectively taken away. So the server isn't going to hold anything against you because you didn't pay, because it's been paid. And so you don't feel a sense of obligation to the server anymore. Who do you feel a sense of obligation to? You feel a sense of obligation to the one who paid the debt. But that's okay because you know that that person's a good person. How do you know they're a good person? Because they paid the debt for you. And so objectively, the debt has been paid, it's been taken away, and uh, subjectively, the guilt is taken away because there's no objective guilt for you to feel. David, you see... He had a vague sense of this. That's how he could write this in Psalm 32. But, but he, wasn't, he wasn't entirely sure how it was possible. But somehow he said God, God was going to cover, he was going to not count against him these sins that he had committed. How does he do that? And listen, i got to check my time. Okay, listen. This is a guy whose job it was to lead his people into the presence of God, to know God, to, to, to represent God to them. That's what a king would do. And, 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 and in some ways, he would even be, act like a priest and he would represent the people to God. He was this intermediary at times. How in the world does a guy who was sleeping around and killing his friends, how does he ever get to the point where he says, I can do that? The only way is if somehow that guilt is dealt with. Well, what he knew in a small way, you and I, we experience in all its fullness. Because you see, somehow, when John the Baptist saw Jesus walk by, he knew who he was and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in 1 John chapter 3, John says, you know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away sin, though in, sin, in him there was no sin. See, on the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God 
came into this world, and when he was hung on that cross, do you understand? He was completely exposed. He was ripped open and naked in front of all the world to see. He was uncovered, and he was stripped naked and mocked by those who had put him up there. And in his dying, he was paying the debt. He was covering our sin while he was being uncovered and exposed in our place so that he could take it away. So that when God looks at you, just like that server doesn't look at you and holds nothing, like looks at you and holds nothing against you because your friend paid the debt, God looks at you and he holds nothing against you. Can you believe that? Your guilt has been dealt with. The burden has been lifted. The debt is gone. You need to repent so you can receive that. What did Menninger say? 70% could be released from those hospitals if he could convince them your sins are forgiven. How do you convince you? How can you be convinced that your sins are forgiven? Right here. In the cross of Jesus Christ. Believe it. Receive it. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all these people here. All of us deal with guilt. Some of us are believers who need to know that you are a forgiving God, that when we truly repent, you, you remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And some of us are not believers, and we are being crushed by our guilt, and we don't know where to go with it. I pray for them, that they would see in the cross of Jesus a way to finally deal with their guilt, a finally a way to deal with their burden. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Father, give them rest. Give us all rest in your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.